Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He goes, great, I'm at Trump Tower uh, in Chicago. Come meet me for dinner. I said, excuse me? He lives in Las Vegas. He just, like, came here. I guess we have some room left in the round. Like, we'll figure out. He goes, no, 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 like, I want to join the company with you. And, like, let's go build a company together. And I was like, excuse me? I was like, holy fuck. What is up, Chicago? This is Michael Sakand, and I'm joined by my co-founder and co-host, Simran Sandu, and a third person. Today, we have Sam Ratner. We've been pumped about this interview for a while, and we came out all the way to the Windy City to get a, a seat with this guy. So Sam sold his company, his sports betting app, to Fubo TV for $40 million at the age of 23. Makes me and Simi look like small boys, but <laughs> we were able to send him a Twitter DM and get his attention. So dude, we're, we're super stoked to have you here. I think you mentioned something around turning snow into money. Was that true? Yeah, so grew up northern suburbs of Chicago, Vernon Hills area. Um, and it was like classic, like, how do you make a buck? And like, you don't want to get a job and you don't have time. You're in sports, like a lot of stuff going on. So uh, me and my buddy uh, Ilya started a snow removal company. And it was like, we had no idea what we were doing. Like, absolutely nothing. I mean, it's pretty simple. You just shovel but, like, snow. When it comes to like, like you think that <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like the first person says, like, and do you have insurance in case I slip? Yeah. And there's no salt. And you're like, uh, what the hell is insurance? Like, you know, you're 13. You don't even know what insurance is. So... But like, you know, you just one by one, you learn things. And then like all of a sudden it's like, we had like 50, 60 people at the school, like clearing driveways all winter, like paying everybody cash. Like we were at like a caddy master at like, a <laughs> club, you know, and, but it was a cool, it was like a really good learning experience. And we had like a couple hundred houses by the time we were done with it. And, uh, but yeah, it was like a very, very good learning experience of like it's a very Midwest upbringing, yeah. like yeah. blue collar. We're just, yeah. uh, we're going to pick up our shovels and we're yeah. getting to work. I know. Yeah. You yeah. Do go from sports betting, you go from snow shoveling to, to sports betting in the Midwest, I feel yeah. like is a natural transition. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, I mean, we, yeah, it's definitely the natural transition. I think. Well, dude, I feel like Chicago was a good place for you to build a sports betting company because I swear to God at all these big 10 schools, like half the frat kids are bookies and yeah, it's no like, doubt. This is where they're going after college, so yeah. you might as well build around that demographic. Yeah, and right. also one other thing, I remember I, I interviewed the founder of Grubhub, um, Mike Evans, back yeah. in the day. He's he's based here, yep. and he was like, Chicago is the most diverse city, demographic wise. Mm -hmm. um, and if I had started Grubhub in Silicon Valley, right, like it wouldn't have scaled to the rest yeah. of America. And I was yeah. like, that's a really interesting insight. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times, like nothing wrong with the Bay Area, but I think they forget that like 99% of the country is absolutely not the Bay Area. And you know, and like yep. Chicago even, like <laughs> people in Chicago would argue Chicago is not the United States either. Yeah, That's how we're like, what about like Pike County and Indy? And like, that's how we think about it here versus they think that, well, we have to think about these people in Chicago and like these other cities. And it's like, it's just like a different scale, you know? So I think when you start and more, it, you get better feedback quicker. Cause like mm. everyone in the Bay area is willing to try everything. Yeah. It's like, all right, this is the <laughs> yeah. new thing. Like we're going to try this. I, funny enough, I had never in my whole life been to the entire state of California until like three months ago. Really? Never went, never went. And I went for demo day cause Andrews and Horwitz and stonks were having the, this demo day. They asked me to come to, and it hit me like on the plane. I was like, oh, I've never even been here. <laughs> yeah. And then like, I went to this like very classic, like, Hey, we're all getting together in this apartment in the Bay area. And I was like, all right, this sounds like out of a movie. Like I'll go to this thing. And it was like, it was great. It was, um, everyone in the room is like very driven. All their whole being is about building a company. 
but uh but they, <laughs> uh, but like they had, they had never been to Iowa. They yeah. had never been to Cleveland. They had never, and so like when you were listening to them talk about the market, it kind of like every person's business when they would then talk about the customer, kind of sounded like they were just talking about the students at like USC or yeah. UCLA or something, or like some tech worker with two hundred can stock options, yeah, plus salary, <laughs> yeah, right. And so it was like, uh, and like. It, it, it bleeds into everything. It's like, it bleeds into pricing, what people, like Absolutely. people's propensity to pay. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, um, you know, most people, like most people in the United States, other than rent, food, whatever, pay for like less than 10 things on their credit card every month. Mm. And so it's like, for you to be one of those things in people's, you know, bandwidth to be able to pay for, it's gotta solve a real problem. They have to really like it, you know? Wow. So, yeah. Like, I mean, I'm thinking about like my own friends too, who like built companies in the Bay, or at mm -hmm. least they raised money there. Yeah. They're all gone now. Like they have moved to areas like Chicago and New York yeah. because that's where their customers are. Right. right? And yeah. that's always been so interesting to me. Mm. It's like, maybe it's a good place to get started if you're trying to get money, you're young, yep. but like, it's not indicative of like your customer base to, yeah, which is kind of the well, big point. Bill, Gur Bill Gurley was asked, yeah. if I was 25, like, or 22, where would I be building my next startup? And he was like, Look, Miami and Austin are really fun cities. Yeah. But um, I would go to Silicon Valley because like there's so fewer distractions. It's almost it's so boring. Your only choice is to build a billion dollar tech company. Well, the other especially thing, in like the South. Yeah. Bay. The good thing about yeah. Silicon Valley is just like the honeycomb of talent. And if you want to make a really big hire and someone's really talented, other than the economics of what they're currently making at Microsoft or wherever they are, other than economics, the only other decision is, are they, are they, um, you know, turning left down this road to go to that office or taking a right and going into this office? Like it's right there. Yeah. But if you have a company in Chicago, obviously things have now changed with COVID, whatever. But like, if you feel like it's important for the people to be there, it's a big ask to someone, especially mm -hmm. post COVID now, it's a big ask to say, we want you to move to Chicago or mm -hmm. move to New York or move to Austin if you're not from there. So, the well, the market, while it's not good to study customers in the Bay Area, that's where the talent is. Yeah. And so it's a lot easier yeah. to recruit because they don't have to leave. They don't have to change their lives. They're changing where they're working. They're changing what they're working on, but they don't have to go sit down with their wife or their husband and say, hey, like I want yeah. this opportunity. We're moving to Boston. It's like, what? Like, <laughs> yeah. Because then it's like, if it doesn't work out there, now you don't even want to be there. You're not from there. There's no other big startup. Like, there are, but relatively speaking. And then like you end up coming back if it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. So it's a big ask, you know? Yeah. In regards to your team though, you guys are pretty tight knit. I think tight I saw, knit, yeah. yeah, I saw a tweet that was kind of making fun of your cousin a little bit because he oh, was yeah. like, Goofball. yeah, He'll putting the envelopes yeah. together. Yeah. He was like stamping these papers. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. He, he interned for us. Um, he's actually on Mr. Beast's content team now. He moved okay. to the middle of nowhere, North Carolina, um, and he's loving it. He's at the warehouse, like whatever, every day making content. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like goofball. Like it was a like classic, like, all right, my cousin will do that. My buddy will do Like it was, you know, and you just like put it together. Like almost half the people who were at the company were like friends of mine. Like one of them was the best man at my wedding. You know? Awesome. Yeah. So, okay. When you... What, so you're here in Chicago. Yeah. Were you going to school here and then you dropped out to start your, yeah. your, your company? Yeah, I went to Mizzou. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I know some people from Mizzou. Yeah. yeah. We have a lot of friends in Austin who, who went to Mizzou like nursing school. Oh, okay, cool. Different yeah. outcome than you, school. but you know. Sure. Yeah. They, yeah, Mizzou, like half, like most of my, other than my home friends, like all my best friends were like my friends in college, my fraternity brothers and stuff. So like, I went long enough to kind of go through that. I went long enough to like go through the hell of pledgeship and then left. It's like, <laughs> well, it's like, the, it, it's the most fun that you never want to have again. Yeah. Yeah, but like would do it a hundred times over again, like best experience of all time. But kind of felt like I did that. And like backing up, like I think uh, I'm pretty sure my dad knew like this whole college thing was just like never gonna happen for me. Like I was gonna go, but it was like, eh. Like, like when people were packing the car, I think everyone's like, my mom's excited, sister's excited. My dad's thinking like, what is he doing? Like yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. shot he's gonna actually like do this or like whatever. But he was also in the same fraternity, which was A-Pi at Indiana. So like he kind of thought like, eh, he'll go rush A-Pi and like, yeah, maybe he'll do it, whatever. But I went and to do that, like there were two things going on. One, my girlfriend, now wife, was going to Mizzou. That was a big part of it. And it was also like me and Ilya kind of just like gave up on the snow removal thing. Looking back on it, how much like the conversations on Twitter have changed now. Yeah. Had I not been interested in building like tech companies and like whatever, like we would have really blown that business up. Like because everyone else in the business was 62 years old and owned four trucks. 
and we were just dominant. Like it was a good business. Dude, this this whole blue collar thing is a lot more scalable than people think. Like I have, so I, we have a buddy think, yeah. in Austin. His name's Paul Appleby, and he started this company called Waxed Mobile. I'm like, oh, that's cute. You're gonna detail cars. Like that's awesome. Bro, like continues to Rockefeller every month, right? So like, <laughs> at one point he was just him doing every kind of car. He was using a sedan. Yep. Next thing you know, he's trading in the Accord for a Sprinter. And he's traveling across, yep. he's doing dispatching. Yep. And now he's kind of doing this idea where he's just using independent contractors in San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, he's expanding. And they're just fulfilling jobs and he's routing jobs to them as the yep. dispatcher. Yep. And there's so much demand it's like the uh, classic, for the jobs. It's a classic business that any VC would be like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Yeah. Because it's not, there's no economies of scale. There's no like, there, there is a marginal cost of replication to do every single one of those jobs. Every time you need, if you're decaling a car, you need the supplies, you need the water, you need the sponge, you need, you need an employee. It's not like you built software once and now you're scaling, you yeah. know, CAC or whatever, like just acquiring customers. So, but like when you do it, it's a cash cow and like no one else wants to do that. Mm -hmm. That's the big moat. It's like, oh, like, well, how are these things like, like what's, no, no, no. The moat is that no one else wants to do these fucking jobs. Like no one wants to build these types of businesses. But if you buy in and then you get big enough, the only person who's going to want to buy you is like probably like pretty legit and it's gonna be like an yeah. all cash deal. Some like yeah. random company in Cleveland is gonna buy some big national <laughs> detailing thing that you've never heard of yeah. for 300 million bucks. So mm. like, but you're also like, it's a, it's more of a 15 year bet. It's very difficult to scale those things really quickly. It's kind of like a it's franchise. It's not flashy, right? It's not No, like, it's not flashy. Yeah. But you also have to get it right in like one city. So like, it's like you built, they built one McDonald's really well. And then once they was the best performing asset of all time, then they scaled it. If you just try and start a fast food chain and your business plan starts with we're opening 20 locations, well, which one's the one that everyone looks to as the, that's how it started? None of them. So like there's this, there's no, um, there's just like this lack of planning essentially that goes on. So you kind of have to start small, master a city and then yeah. go to another city. And after you get to like two or three in these service type businesses, now you can, you have capital, you can bring in real talent and now you scale it to 20. But to get to that one, two or three cities, can be like it's probably a minimum of like to do it right a five-year thing we're like so that's where i lost interest personally like what as like i was just like i'm not willing to like if you want to build 10 billion dollar company like i just wasn't willing to spend five or ten years of my life doing that so and look what happened right you did 40 million in two years or three three yeah, years like two. yeah that's insane yeah, yeah. so but that's so like, vastly alternate reality with service-based blue collar business yeah. tech company. Uh, the one catalyst that we aren't discussing is like the massive risk of doing that. Cause there's like, if you know you're a good executor, in my opinion, there's kind of like a near hundred percent chance that it's gonna work if you build a service business. Like if you're an executor, it's just an execution game. You don't have existential risk from Google. You don't have like unknown regulatory environments you don't know about that take, you know, that take lawyers and barriers to entry. You're just building a service business. So like, sure the upside's like way lower, but like, I don't want to say it's guaranteed, but if you know what you're doing, you're gonna build a good business, like versus it's the opposite of like, like, because candidly, like, and we'll talk about it, like worked out for me in the company, but nearly every single other startup that had raised capital that isn't DraftKings, Fandle, like whatever kind of died. Like, obviously you have the giants, you've got Barstool, they acquired the score. Like those are big businesses, but like all these other like early stage gaming companies, like they're either out of business or they're just bleeding cash because there was no one to buy them. And that was the risk. So um, that's why we knew it was important to take a deal, but yeah. yeah. I think it's a fair point. I mean, my, I guess, pushback would be that you could always fall back on a services business, that's correct. right? Like, it's like, you're young, you're 22, 23, mm -hmm. like, fuck it, take the big swing, right? Like this is as risk-free as you will ever be. If it doesn't work out, yeah, you can go start an agency. You can go do One a devil's business. advocate to that. Okay, well, what would you say? That once you've spent a few years building what you, whether it worked out the way you wanted to or not, what you think could have been a billion dollar company. Yeah. It's very hard to go then to work on something that you know never could be. Because it's like, okay, I just spent three, like you're saying like you'd always go back, but you don't wanna go back because you've tasted what you think it could have been. Mm. And you know, if I build a service business and scale it to three cities, like I'll be rich, I'll make 15, 20 million bucks in 10 years, like whatever, and I'll sell it. But like, you're never taking that public for $2.8 billion or something. So it's like, you think you'd go back, but then it, I, I've seen like a lot of people in their late twenties, early thirties, who've spent seven years building a startup that didn't work. And you know, they're actually a good executor. And I think that's the other thing to think about is yeah. like startups fail, founders don't. If you're a good executor, go build another business. Don't let, because a company didn't work, be your identity or whatever. Yeah. But it kind of does sometimes to that mentally. And then they're not willing to go what 
they said 10 years ago, which is the backup plan of like, well, I know I could do something like that because you you got like the taste of it a little bit and yeah. you love the game and that's a different game to play. So, I, yeah, I mean, I was going to say like we, you know, also exited our business, yeah. obviously on a much smaller scale than yours, but we're, I guess for, at least for me, I'm in a mode now where it's like, you know, nobody talks about that point after a success early on that it's like, okay, what am I doing next? What am I doing next? And like the yeah. self doubt is like, yeah. honestly, sometimes pretty loud in your brain. Yeah. It's loud. Right. Yeah. And like, it's crazy. We've talked to a lot of people who've had that early win, like in their early twenties, mid twenties. And it really is crazy. Like, am I a one hit wonder? Right. Right. Like am I one trick pony? Yeah. Can I do it again? Can I yeah. unlock that dog again? Yeah. I think there's like this, um, I think what happens is it really depends on the early win. Did you make 10 million bucks, 15 million bucks, or did you make 70? And I think what happens is if it's not in that range, but it's like sub 10 and like you have like three, 4 million bucks in cash, the people I know in that situation are kind of the most lost because you have enough more than regular people in the suburbs of Chicago ever had collectively by the time they were 50. So you have money, but not enough to live like some lifestyle as if like, you know, you're an NBA player. Yeah, you can't be flashy. Can't be flashy. So you're in this middle yep. ground of, you know, you're good, but other people think it's like a rookie contract in the league or like your second contract, like, oh yeah, like they blew it, like whatever. And so I see a lot of younger guys that like, they put three, four million bucks in the bank, and they're in this in between of everyone around them assumes they should be the most comfortable of all time. But anyone who's made money, like you're not thinking about, you're not, you, all you're doing is thinking about the people that are above you Yeah. in a, in a, in a inspirational Absolutely. way, not yeah. like in a, in a, like, oh, I'm jealous way, just like in an aspirational way. Maybe that's the right word. Um, and so like, you kind of have this, like people, like friends of yours perception, maybe essentially, um, of how you should feel it's actually much different than how you absolutely feel. um and so that that's always challenging i think but i think it depends on what the win is because if you can't make 10 million plus then it's like okay well now it's a little bit of a different conversation like just yeah. you know holistically like market doubles every eight years do the math you're, you know you're gonna have hundreds of millions of dollars at some point so um but like if it's like three million bucks it's a big win you're good take a deep breath but then you are pretty quick to probably want to be like what do i want to do now like you're a little bit on edge you, you know, know i I think there is pushback to that though, because I've seen people who have made like the 20, 30, 40 million range. And what they do is they actually become too risk averse. And I understand that you can use the S and P 500 to get to, sure. to 70 or 80 yeah. or hundred by the time your yeah, kids yeah, are, yeah. you know, yeah. 30 or 40, like yeah. whatever. Yeah. But everyone is just, it's just like, I see these rich guys on Twitter. Everyone's trying to like do a podcast, totally. do a personal holding company. Yeah. And none of those companies are really going to be legacy defining. And it's like, you had this early win. you were able to make that much money with a company over five to 10 years. Yeah. And then they just kind of like fade away. It's like, I want to be the, I want to be a personal holding company guy. Why does everybody want to do that model? It just seems to me like a lot of bets across the board that don't feel meaningful. And it feels and I'm just kind of going on a yeah. tangent here, but like a little exploitative exploitative and that a lot of these like big Twitter influencer guys were just looking for operators to do their dirty work and build, you know, like service based businesses on their behalf or something along those lines. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it also has to do with the fear thing, though. Like you kind of touched on it earlier. It's like you got the big win. Like you really would rather not prefer to fall flat on your face by maybe swinging big again. Right. It's like maybe you went through uh, like the trenches figuratively speaking. And it was like, that wasn't so fun. Maybe I just keep getting these easy little wins if I can. And it doesn't require yeah. a whole lot of work. I think it's a little bit of, um, to me, every executive or founder that I've met who doesn't immediately want to do it again, Unless it was like, I'm gonna discount anyone that was on like a 13 year venture scale journey, sells it for a ton, 13 year, that's like a long time, like whatever. Yeah. But on like a five year, six year horizon, had a big win, sold the company, like whatever, and doesn't wanna do it again, to me, one man's opinion, this can be a this, you know, uh, <laughs> is that they actually do not believe they could do it again. Otherwise they would, period, full stop. They would do it again. They would not at 30 something years old, start some hold co and start writing checks for 2 million bucks. They would do yeah. it. Why would you do that? You would just do it again. Yeah. And so I think 
you know, everyone has their difference of opinion of how much luck type stuff comes into play. But I think as a person, when you accomplish something, you have an underlying feeling of how much luck may or may not have played in a role, market conditions, certain things. And if you thought like, no, like I think the majority of this success was because I really know what I'm doing. Well, then you would just do it again. So I think it's a little bit of that, a little bit of what you said of like, well, I'm looked at this way. I have this brand that I sold this company. That's why people listen to me on Twitter or some, whatever it, their narrative would be. And by trying to start another one myself as the operator, I'm taking it at bat that I don't need to take. But then in my opinion, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Cause I only do it cause I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm shooting free throws in an empty gym. I don't care. Like this is what I would do if no one, like to me, I love business so much and I've done it for so long that making money is a byproduct of the game of business. But to me, it's like, I'm lucky to have loved business. Some people love things that don't make any money. They, you know, they love painting or they love things yeah. that are like tough to do or like whatever, or they love making music and the odds of that are low, <clears throat> or they love being a teacher and that's great. It just pays less. I'm fortunate that I wanted to be in something that just coincidentally the, the, uh, the figure that represents how good you are at the game you're playing happens to be, you make a lot of money. Like that's kind of, the I love that framing. I feel yeah. the same way. Yeah. We're lucky just to love the game love of the business. Game. Yeah. yeah. And I also think people have talked about this too, where it's like, just plant the flag, like where you want to be. And 15 years ago, people playing video games. That was like, I can't believe my son or daughter plays video games. Like, oh my God, go to school, like whatever. Well, now these kids are making a lot of money. And so like the game comes around to you, but you just got to play your game. You know, you got to be in the right arena. Yeah. But you have to do what you want. And so in my opinion, when I see people with big success, I am like licking my chops to find out what they're doing next. And when I hear they're like doing like, they're not, they're like going to bet like what? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like yeah. What I also doing? feel like, that way. I also feel that way when you see someone who's made it and they're doing like a low risk yeah. bet. Yeah. And, yeah. Low risk bet. And to me, it's like, I looked up to you. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I would say like, there, there's an age thing though. Like, all right. If you're like mid forties, you have kids. Like, okay. Different ball game. Yeah. But I, and I've like talked about this with my wife from the day I dropped out of college until my mid forties, I'm all in, I'm building companies all in, whether that's going to be one company and showroom now is another 15 year ride, like whatever, or it's not. And then it's something else I'm going to give until where people that are older than me's advice is like, do it until the kids are a certain age kind of thing. And then like, all right, your, your opinions about where you want to spend your time will change. You'll have a family, like whatever. But until that's, a thing I'm all in on building companies. I, like I almost never, I can't say never, but I almost never angel invest. I don't buy real estate and throw 6 million bucks in some property to print an 8% cash on cash. I don't do any of that stuff. Not that I don't think it should make money, but I know that relatively speaking dollar for dollar, if I just focused my entire energy on one thing, all eggs in one basket for a 20 year period, whether that basket changes over time because you sell those companies like whatever, but that's the only thing you focus on, I'm gonna be way ahead than if I had been buying real estate in Indy. You know, like, and then, and that's then, what Kevin Ryan says. He yeah. still puts like the vast majority of his cash into the yeah. next business. Kevin, that's Kevin like, Ryan from Insider MongoDB. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he like that's who that's who I want to be. The yeah. unknown that is he's he's awesome. I haven't met him. I haven't talked to him. But um, the no one knows who I am. I think he said on a podcast recently, like no one knows who I am and I can go have dinner and not be annoyed. And we're all very successful and no one on the team feels the need to be known for anything. Like that's like, that's why until like a, like a month ago, I had never, I, this is the first podcast I've ever been on in my life. Yeah. I mean, no. that's why we were excited to yeah. get you. Yeah. And I've said no to every podcast. I don't, until a month ago, I had never tweeted anything I and that. I have found some value. And I was convinced by a couple of people in my circle, you're, you're missing a lot by not engaging on Twitter. I was on Twitter as much as anyone for the last 10 years. I read everything, but I never said a word. And I think there's a balance of there is value to be had by putting yourself out there. Um, I, people have written checks into my company. People have, like, it's been unbelievable, but a little bit 
do it in a way where you're trying to be helpful and tell stories and be whatever, but I by no means have any interest well, in having a personal yeah, brand. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. don't even know if there's yeah. like that much value in being famous, but like for key stakeholders, mm -hmm. like if you're trying to raise money for something or yeah. if you're trying to recruit, yeah. like being well known for those reasons helpful. is very, yeah. very helpful, yeah, especially helpful. if like they respect you and it's like yeah. actually valuable informational content that you're putting out. Uh, the one thing I found too is that by putting out how you feel about certain things, it's almost like you then get to go to a meeting with a fund or whatever it is, and they kind of already know where they agree and disagree with you on, whether yeah. that's political, whether that's a business take, like whatever it is. And so you actually eliminate meetings that three minutes in, you're like, oh, this is never working. I don't wanna work with them. They would never wanna write this check with me. And then other meetings where you're going in be already knowing it's gonna be a great conversation because of the way you met which was over some Twitter DM because they liked your take and they agree with it and like, mm -hmm. like whatever. So to me, it's like, that is as much value as I'm willing to, or that's as much as I'm willing to put myself out there for that value. But the moment, and I haven't said anything in like a month on Twitter, because the moment it like becomes like personal branding thing, I have no interest in that, honestly. Yeah, yeah. the guru type bullshit. Yeah, no, 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 no. Makes me yeah. sick. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> gives me more goosebumps than a billionaire with 59 LinkedIn connections and no profile photo. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's get back to the company you built, right? Because okay. we're trying to get tactical with with the uh, with the audience here. Okay. Um, okay. So, what was the opportunity that you identified at age twenty one? Okay. It was impending regulation. How did okay. you jump on it? Uh, so, I played a lot of online poker, a lot. Whole dorm room in college was ten screens, like my whole life. So, I knew the ecosystem. Most importantly, I knew like the I knew the I knew the gamblers, and like at the time, like gambling was illegal in the US. So all these sites were like these offshore third party sites, like whatever. And you're reading the chat box conversations, most of which are not in English. These people are in Estonia, Russia, the Ukraine, like all over the world speaking. In <laughs> and so like I plugged in some plugin to translate everything to English. And then I wasn't even playing after a while. I was just reading and no one was talking about poker. Nobody. They were all talking about sports betting. This is like 2017, 2018. And everyone's talking about how like, oh, like, did you hear about like the US, like they're gonna re repeal the federal ban on sports betting in the United States. And everyone was talking about that. And I thought it was interesting. And so I started doing diligence on like, how does this work overseas? And overseas, it's a part of the culture. Like we would never think twice if grandma, if our grandma buys a lottery ticket, but if she bet on the Bengals, we'd be like, what did you just, like, <laughs> you'd like flip out. Like, you'd right. be like, what are you doing? But there, those are the same thing. In London, in the UK and other parts of Europe, Sports, you bet on them inside the soccer games, at the arenas, like it is a part of culture. They have 8,000 betting kiosks throughout London. Like it's just mm. a culture thing. So I thought it would evolve very similarly in the United States. And as someone who loved online poker in the gaming business, I wanted to see if I could build a gaming company. Um, and so then the first thing I did was kind of dig into, okay, what's the tech like? in this arena. Who are the players right now, or who are probably gonna be the players the moment they lift this ban um, and open the doors essentially? And then assuming they're gonna need a lot of tech, who are the technology players? And what I found is there were some clear leaders. You had DraftKings and FanDuel, they had, you know. What were they doing at the time, just fantasy? Fantasy, fantasy. yeah. Fantasy betting? No, it was just fantasy sports. Just fantasy. Fantasy just, football, honestly. Yeah, it was just part. probably ad supported, subscription supported. Yeah, I think you, yeah, 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 yeah. Ads, yeah I think so. Um, but they knew for years prior, they were a part of the legislation to get it passed. Oh, of course. Yeah, so they weren't like, oh, this is going to be great. Like, no, no, they were the reason why that <laughs> happened. Um, and so then when you look at the tech, though, until DraftKings bought SB Tech, I mean, they built their website for fantasy. That was about it. They built none of the sportsbook stuff for the most part. Like a lot of it is just like, and no one does. No one does because um, in the in in the U.S., similar to cannabis, it's a state by state regulatory environment. So you have to go through regulatory compliance in every state. Both the company and the entities, and all the key persons, directors, and officers, and your tech has to go through the state technical bureaus. If you want to change oh. the hex color of the green button to click place bet, the regulators have to sign off on that. Literally every line of code. You know, so you're dealing with consumer funds. 1-800-GAMBLER, there are some issues. So like, it's important that these regulations exist. But essentially, everyone was like, well, we don't wanna spend two years getting brand new code through the state labs. How can we make this quicker? Well, two years prior, while the legislation was happening, all the European tech providers saw the US coming and started going through the labs essentially to get compliance. And so- you So like preemptive. Preemptively. So yeah. like companies like Canby, Amelco, SB2, all these companies, um, went through compliance. So then the moment they lifted the thing, 
lifted the ban on sports betting, government that is, DraftKings, FanDuel, MG, everyone just like went to these companies and white labeled it. Same app, different paint job, put the logo on top, make it look like FanDuel, make it look like DraftKings, you know, whatever. Wow. And so I was like, okay, so this is, so you back up 18 months. I did the diligence to find out everyone's getting through the labs or they're working on that. It was clear from the people I talked at the fantasy companies and then the traditional brick and mortar casino companies like MGM or whatever, that um, they were never gonna build this tech. And if you think about it, they're kind of non-technical companies, yeah. MGM. You know, it's a real estate hospitality resort company. They're not in the business of like online, whatever. So, so other than DraftKings or FanDuel, my thought was like any other pro player who's gonna get in this is either gonna be the big casino companies or the big media companies, which is now kind of just happening with ESPN and Fanatics, although Fanatics isn't really media, but generally Barstool. speaking, yeah. you have Barstool. So it was like, so if it's media or it's brick and mortar casino, Neither of that is tech. So, um, but they're gonna have a lot of existing infrastructure that they're gonna wanna, you know, um, get in there. So if you are, you know, Barstool, you're gonna wanna integrate all your content into like your betting app to make it like, you know, so all the yeah. content's right in the same. And the problem was all of these third-party European technology companies, since they've been around forever, they essentially started out in like, you know, in Europe as some like desktop platform in the early 2000s. They, they were then were just like compressed into a mobile experience. So it felt like you were in the browser on your phone. That's how bad the apps were. And so I was like, if but they weren't built for iOS. Yeah. So I was like, if we just throw this stuff in the garbage and rebuild everything, get through compliance, have APIs for streaming and ticketing and merchandising and all the things these media companies and resorts, you know, MGM has 30 million people in their MLife program, like whatever it was in these existing assets that they had and users that they were using as the reasoning to get into the business, if they could easily integrate that, it would be a home run. And so we built Victory kind of with the idea of like you always do, you're building a company, assuming you're going to market, but I kind of always knew in the back of my head, we were eventually going to cut a deal with somebody. Yeah. Dude. But you have, but you, and, um, in my head, it was supposed to, I like wanted to do a joint venture, but I didn't want to be a platform. So a lot of venture investors at the time liked the play, but they're like, well, then why don't you be the platform and all these other platforms that are from Europe? I said, the problem with that is that's actually like not a great business. Those are like, are like being the B2B provider, it's like it's like UPS versus FedEx. It's like, who's cheaper? Right. Just get my package there. The, the spread's the spread. Like, it, like it's not gonna look that much different. So everyone was just competing on price in that business. IGT yeah. can be. So I was like, I'd much rather just pick a partner, like a Hulu or a Disney or an ESPN or Fubo TV or whatever it was that had an existing audience in sports and just that was gonna be who our partner was. And long story short, it made a lot more sense to just sell the company. And when you yeah. say partner, like, did you raise financing from any of these like incumbents in the space? No, we raised from venture. Venture, yeah. but you, yeah. but you had a yeah. That's what I was gonna guy. get at, right? Like you brought in like someone who's very entrenched in the uh, space yeah, onto it. your team, and yeah. that was a, a huge lift. Yeah. So can you talk like what's his name? Can okay. you talk about him? Yeah. yeah. So uh, one of my best friends, best guy, one of the best guys I've ever known in my whole life, Scott Butera. Yeah. Um, it was pretty clear about a year into the company. I went to um, uh, Chad Stender, who's uh, was on our board at Seventy Six Capital, um, and. I was at the stage where we were an authorized gaming operator of the NBA and Major League Baseball. Uh, we had market access, which are the state licenses in a few states. So like we kind of had the assets that you would need to run an operation. The platform was pretty much through compliance. Like we kind of had the pieces. And as you're meeting with regulators and you're trying to cut bigger deals with the leagues and certain things, you know, now I'm much better. When I was 22, right. I was, they were like, who is this clown? Yeah. Like, like in, in, regardless of like, like. But they, that's still impressive. You're able to get an M MLB and NBA deal by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. We did that before we started hiring out a lot of things. But, but so I went to the board. I was like, all right, here's the deal. Um, I'm smart enough to recognize like when I'm, it's time to have some adults in the room. Like I was the oldest person at the company besides one other person, really. Like for, for the majority of the time. You need your Eric Schmidt. What's that? Yeah. yeah. So, so it was like, okay. So they, you know, 76 Capital knows a lot of people in sports, made a lot of introductions, as did some of our other investors, whatever. I probably met with like, you know, a hundred suits, if you would call them that. And I was like, these people are like suit and tie, executives from Caesars. It was like, yeah. no, like this isn't gonna work, like whatever. And I like, I stumbled into meeting Scott and some background on Scott is, was an investment banker for nearly 20 years on Wall Street. Um, big banks, UBS, et cetera, um, always in the online gaming, well, not 
wasn't really online for until recently, but brick and mortar, traditional real estate, casino, gaming, lodging, hotel, stuff like that. Um, while at UBS, one of his larger clients was our former president, Donald Trump, and they were going uh, through a restructuring. And Scott was like, like the young gun that everyone wanted on Wall Street, all the banks. And because he helped represent and help Trump Entertainment with their capital and Donald's personal money, Donald wanted Scott to come to the company and help them get out of this mess that they were in. So Scott went and he was the president and chief operating officer of uh, Trump Entertainment Resorts for Donald Trump. Uh, they This is in like the late 90s, early 2000s and turned it around, um, launched The Apprentice. Donald went, before The Apprentice, no one knew who Donald Trump was unless he lived in New York City and you were in real estate and banking. All they knew him as was like, he's the young guy who's going bankrupt, who took his like, you know, yeah. had this portfolio and like tried to get into all the two big stuff and it didn't work out. And they made him the most famous person on earth in 2003 with NBC and turned it around. And essentially they had all the hotels and real estate and all the casinos and then the ancillary stuff like, like Trump airlines and whatever. It was the casinos in Atlantic city and Indiana um, that didn't do too well. Yeah. And so what they did is like, all right, well, and I'm gonna spitball numbers here, yeah. but uh, the real estate business is worth four or 5 billion. The casino business is 2 billion in the hole. How about we just merge these things, cancel out the debt, take it public, people pay it off, and we're gonna have a very healthy balance sheet. And so that's what Scott did is he essentially came in as like the rescue banker, negotiated with over 300 creditors. Morgan Stanley put in a billion dollars worth of equity and they took the company public in 0405. And, um, so then now Scott like became known as like the turnaround guy on Wall Street. So right after that, he left, kind of handed it back to Donald. Carl Icahn hired him to come run Tropicana, which he had just been a majority shareholder of pretty much. Um, and that was like over a 10 casino property company. I think they turned that around. Carl made billions. It's what he used to acquire a controlling stake in Caesars. And then Scott did like, he was CEO of Foxwoods, largest resort in North America in Connecticut, owned by the Manchatucket tribe. And then he was the um, uh, um, commissioner of arena football. So kind of like big corporate executive, right? You'd think he's like the suit and he wears the suit. Every, guy showers in a suit, right? It's he's the guy you see in a suit and you're like, yeah, you belong in a suit. You know, like we don't belong in, like you look like you belong in a suit, but would like roll up the sleeves and, you know, hang out with kids our age and build a company again. And he told, wow. and he told a story about how like, like when they were going through the restructuring, like Trump didn't want to pay for this one office space that they were using outside of Trump Tower. And so like they just went to this development site and on like the 30th floor, like open walls, the windows are getting built, like whatever, like dust everywhere. It's a construction site. They just set up tables and they worked from there. Wow. And so like, so he, so he like, like, and when you're going through restructuring, no you hard count, hats, you either. count every penny. Like Scott made jokes that like he'd count like how much ink was left in the printer. Like it was like always a joke. And so like he was, although very senior, everyone at every league, the NFL, the NBA, every regulator in every state in the country, everyone knows who he's in. He's been in gaming for 30 years, but he's still like, let's go build something and raise money and roll up the sleeves. So it was like a perfect fit. So it yeah. makes sense why you wanted to work with him. How did you get him to take that a chance a on you? That is a great question. Uh, at the time, he was the president of gaming for MGM. So he like built bet MGM, brought in GVC. They did a joint venture. GVC brought the tech from Europe. MGM bought the brand, bet MGM. It's now the third largest sports book in America. So he was doing that. But it, at the time, um, remember this is COVID. Um, kind of right before COVID really. Well, around the same so time. So at this point, sports betting was legal in Jersey? Sports betting was legal in Jersey, I believe. Got it. Yeah. But the problem was MGM, uh, one of Scott's best friends, Jim Muren, who'd been running MGM forever, stepped down and they replaced him with more of like a real estate guy. So they were kind of like, all right, things are struggling. Let's go back to what we used to know. We're a real estate and resort company. And so I think Scott and a lot of senior management were like, eh, we might lose some steam on this online gambling, compete with DraftKings type of <laughs> you know vibe. Yeah. And he was, he'd been, he'd run brick and mortar casinos before. He kind of went to MGM because it was his thesis to build a big internet gaming company. And so he, I don't think loved that. And um, we met actually because he, and a few other people were gonna start a company. And then uh, we had a couple calls and he pretty quickly was like, I should be doing this. And so um, he called me and he was essentially like, hey, where are you? 
And I was like, like we had talked a couple of times and I was like, I'm at the office. He goes, great. I'm at Trump tower uh, in Chicago. Come meet me for dinner. I said, excuse me. He lives in Las Vegas. He just like came here. And so I was like, oh my God, like Scott's probably going to want to write a big check into the company. Like this would be great. And then he was like, all right, like I'm in, I want to do this with you. I was like, great. And I was like, like, I guess we have some room left in the round. Like we'll figure out. He goes, no, no, no. Like I want to join the company with you and like, let's go build a company together. And I was like, excuse me. I was like, holy fuck. Like, this is awesome. And he was like, yeah, for like, and he had already left MGM at the time, like whatever. And so it made a Damn. lot of sense. I think he was at a, Scott was at a point in his life where it's like, all right, like I've worked for Donald and Icon and like whatever, and the tribes and the AFL and MGM. Like, I want to kind of go do something more fun and like build a company again from nothing. And like, you know, we, you know, so he's been fun. everywhere, even worked with the yeah. tribes, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which so with the leagues, thing, which the, a, tribes. Yeah, yeah. the tribes, the crews. Big deal. Yeah. 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 So this is interesting, right? Like our show is focused on like young founders and like, um, a lot of people are just Mm -hmm. aspiring to like build really impressive companies. Yeah. What would your advice be to people who maybe are playing into regulated spaces like gaming, right? Or gambling. And they have to kind of get someone who's very experiment experienced or legit, but not even just in a regulated industry. Yeah. Any kind of space to find like a senior player. Yeah. So here's my opinion. If you can't sell a senior executive to get involved in the company, then how could you raise money? Because if the people who know the business more than anyone think it's the stupidest thing they've ever heard of and they wouldn't jump ship. So to me, when you get a senior person to want to join the company, if I was a VC, now there's something to be said about like, well, maybe they're like just taking a board seat or like something right, like that, right. whatever. It's very different. But it's very different. Um, but I think if, especially if you're in a regulated market, the barrier to entry is what people usually think it is. It's capital, which is, oh, the lawyers will be expensive. The docs will be expensive. The licenses will be expensive. Those are, you're going to have those expenses either way if the business is successful or not. Um, but what you need is when someone calls a regulator in a state that they've known for 20 years, they just move you to the front of the list. Not because, and they're not doing anything wrong. It's just, they, they know that here's what this, this is what a state regulator wants. A state regulator wants the people who can get through and generate tax revenue for the state the quickest. That's what's best for the citizens of a state, right? right? So if they think, all right, well, this company might have applied six months ago, but like they're undercapitalized. And, and his name's Vladimir and he's based in, based in, in uh, Czechoslovakia. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it, 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 it's like, it's like, oh, is this serious or not? Or you have a guy who has come and sat in front of you for 30 years with Trump yeah. and Icon and the tribes. And you know, if he's involved, this is going to work way quicker than this company we've never heard of who has no investors and like whatever. So what you're really getting is you're getting the relationships, the relationships, especially in a regulated market are everything. Um, there are certain relationships you want to be careful of, like political relationships with like people like cashing in political chips to like move pieces ahead, like SBF stay away from that game. But the relationships with regulators and most importantly, like lawyers and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, if you walk into the regulator's office with the same lawyers that they've seen for 20 years and the people they've seen for 20 years, there is a, all right, these guys might be young. We've never heard of Sam before, but he's got the pieces. They're sitting in our office right now. Uh, yeah. With your next company, you're not pursuing the same strategy. With your, with your newest company, you're taking advantage of a new technology for yeah. sure. Yeah. And like a trend and a wave. Yeah. But you're not looking at a piece of regulation and being like, okay, how do I interact in this new zone that's being created? Is this a playbook for founders like that could be replicated over and over of let's look for the newest market opportunity in terms of regulation and opening up of a new industry and build something, find some area of the value chain to, to create a wedge in? Um, I would normally always say never chase the trends, but I think there are a few times every 10 or 15 years where like it's not a trend. Like, this is a fundamental change in how we're going to transact and do business. And, you know, AI is one of those. Um but I think it's, there's a lot of people building an AI company. And I think what you, it, 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 it reminds me of crypto a little bit where it's like, could what you be, could what you're working on be solved without crypto? When someone used to pitch me a crypto thing, that was my first thing. Like, do we really need to do this in Bitcoin? Like, can't we just do this regularly? Like same thing with AI. So it's like, could GPT actually just do exactly what you're doing and you just have a different interface and it's kind of a wrapper? Doesn't mean you can't make a couple hundred grand a month, you know, and you have a good business, but eventually like that's not a scalable thing. So in my opinion, like when I see new things like AI and then I'm seeing like whether we're working on at showroom or someone else, all I care about is, is the output to the user not only so special that 
from a product user, from like an perspective, like an experience perspective, the user, it's incredible, but also that the underlying tech or language models that you're using, let's say it's ChatGPT, could never do them on their own based on how they're set up. Missing data, lack of data, like whatever it is, um, then you have a real business. Because if GPE, like there's a lot of people that'll build like a fashion stylist and they're like, oh, like type in like things about yourself and your height and your weight and you know, you know, stuff like that. And then tell me what I should wear out to like this kind of thing. Well, GPT, if you just trained it, could just do that. So then there's no value on top of the fact like it's not that good of an experience anyways. So to me, it's like, is what you're building um, something that on its own, the underlying tech you're using could not have done? You know, that's kind of what I would look for. Um, this is a this is a great pivot into your next idea, but I just want to like kind of tie the bow on the last yeah. story. So you brought on this executive, yeah. long story short, you sold the company before the product had even been launched or you had even picked a partner to launch with. Well, the partner was going to be Fubo TV as a joint venture. Ah. Like that's how conversation started. And Got then it. it was like, all right, this makes a lot more sense for us Got to it. just buy the company. You know, but, your story reminds me a lot of like Disney buying Bamtech, um, which the MLB had created. Yeah. Because everyone needed a streaming service, right? Yeah. And there are only a few companies that could do the technological yeah. complexity of that. Yeah, Bam's the worst thing Major League Baseball. It's <laughs> the worst thing. Well, yeah. well, here's the funny thing, right? Like, if you can, if you can find a way to go to these big organizations, right, and find a yeah. way to partner with them in yeah. some capacity, like it, we talk about our own story with the brew and stuff. It wasn't necessarily straight into an acquisition. It was like, hey, will you guys lead our round? And that mm. started a yeah. uh, a whole yeah. different line of communication JV. Yeah, yeah. Type, right? type deal yeah so it's it's there's some of that that resonates and i'm curious like when you even think about partnerships or how you approached yeah. it in this specific space what are kind of like what's the best way to do it should you not even discuss money with them should it be more of like a barter or something along those lines like what is kind of the the best way to wedge your way in or get your foot in the door so i'll talk about investors and then i'll talk about like partnership deals yeah um, here's what I would say about when I meet with investors. Um, I am raising capital is an informative process, not a persuasive process. Um, you go in and you're meeting with someone, you know, like I met you two in person for the first time today within about five minutes. I think we all like came up with certain opinions that we have of each other and those become pretty cemented. And so within the first three minutes of pitching an investor, while they're listening to you nodding their head, they've come to a million conclusions as to what they think of you, what they think of the market, what they think of this product, what they think of like the round, they heard the terms when you started, now they're only thinking about, ugh, this value's terrible, like whatever. They come up with all these things, right? And to me, I've never had any luck changing anybody's mind ever in my whole life. They might change their behavior. You have certain employees that aren't doing what you want them to do and they'll change their behavior, but they haven't changed their mind usually. Most people don't change their mind. And so to me, it's not a persuasive process. Um, it's an informative one. Mm. I'm going in and I am telling you what I'm doing and I know because I do it that way, because it's true, that when I walk out the door, whether they wanna write the check or not, those investors do look to each other and go with or without us, that I'm doing that with or without them. That I didn't come to like say like if if I had the money like I would no 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 I'm doing this and so like wow. whether they write the check or not has no impact as to whether or not what I just pitched them is going to work because I genuinely believe that to be true yeah. and if you want to write the check then that's great and it's like but but respectfully I'm also there because they're strategic for some reason like I want them as an investor so you give them your full time and focus but you're not begging for capital it, like you also have to remember that like a lot of um, investors. They also like, they're hoping when you walk in the door, they see so much garbage. They're like, please let this be good. People think like you walk in there and like, you think it's Shark Tank where everyone's nervous, they're in suits, like whatever it is. And I'm pitching investors. No, dude, it's the other way around. Like yeah. they get paid to write checks that are going to make money and they just hope the person who walks yeah. in. So if you have the confidence of they, then it comes off as this deal that is going to happen whether they write the check or not. Someone else is going to write this check. They're going to raise the money. They're going to build this business. Whether they decide they don't want to do it or not, totally fine. But there's no like, there's like, I've never left the meeting with anybody and they like wondered what I meant, you know, like, <laughs> so I think that's a big part of it with partnerships. It's similar where if you're, if you're going into a partnership meeting or conversation and they're the only partner 
that would make sense for what you're talking about, it becomes a little bit difficult because you're kind of persuading. But if you're walking into, let's say, a meeting with, um, um, try to think of an example, uh, say like Coca-Cola or something. Coca-Cola knows there's a hundred other drink companies that they don't own, right? And so if what you're pitching is that you're looking for a partner in the food and beverage industry, what they do know is if you have the tone that you had, that I said you have with investors, they know like, well, it's either gonna be us or Pepsi or somebody else, they are gonna get a partner for what it is that they're looking for. So, but it should be more of a conversation like you're saying, because if you go in, everything's business businesses are run, or everything's people businesses are run by people so if you go in and you're trying to immediately be transactional it's like especially for something that's going to be like a five-year partnership or with an investor could be a 20-year thing like it's kind of more of just like like an engaging conversation like you ask the guy at coca-cola like hey can we grab coffee? like the head of uh i don't know partnerships or whatever for content like hey do you mind grabbing coffee in new york and you talk a couple times and you fill them in on what you're doing even though you knew what the ask was the day you met him for coffee, you don't mm -hmm. make the ask then, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, you also don't wanna be too much to jump the gun to think you really want that deal before you know who you're gonna be working with there. You think the whole deal is the brand, the whole deal is the people at the brand. And then the other thing is it's like, if you're working with a company and you really wanted the deal because of the brand, but then the people that you had like political pull with like leave and go somewhere else, now you're like, now it's tough, but if they were to call back and they're like, oh yeah, like, no, that's a good deal. You guys should still do that even though I'm going to, you know, CAA or whatever it is. So it's all relationship-based, investors, partnerships, employees. Like there are people that I am meeting right now that I 100% know aren't joining showroom for, showroom for two years. What about people that are dragging their feet? It's like you do depend on them and oh. that this could be important. Um, okay. Like, like a deal, you mean yeah, like a partnership, right? right. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a problem. Um, <laughs> uh, for example, um, I spoke at, um, Nike's headquarters in Beaverton, Oregon a couple weeks ago, and they had like an annual e-commerce event. Afterwards, I'm talking with the executives at Nike, great team about, you know, opportunities to do stuff together with showroom. But I know a company like Nike is so big. Um, or other companies that are that size when you're working on a partnership, I think of them like I do regulators in gaming. I'm working with the government. It's going to take a long time. They have a million moving pieces. Like, and not taking a long time because they're dragging their feet and they're slow. They just have a lot of different things. Everything's on yeah. a string. This changes, yeah. they want this deal, then we have to talk to the IP guy about this, like yada, yada, yada. And so I approach big corporate deals with the I have zero expectation that this is gonna happen within yeah. six months. And I'm gonna have, every time they send me the email, I'm gonna get back to them really quick to keep the conversation going. But the moment I send that email, I forgot that I've even sent the thing because I know it's gonna take nine months. <laughs> Great framework. Yes, but if you are dependent, if your company's dependent on like a deal from a big company, you have a problem. That's not good because that's gonna take forever and it might not happen. And you might spend half your capital that you raised like hoping this deal was gonna happen on legal work. Like you can't do that. Yeah. Um, which is why like I'm not in the gaming business now. Yeah. <laughs> Great framework, both for investors and uh, partnerships. I'm gonna pocket both. Um, I love the idea of you're sharing a set of, you're sharing novel information. And it's like, are you going to act on that information or are you going to sit with that information, yeah, right? Yeah. I think that's fascinating to think about. Yeah, like if you think about it, if you fast forward to when, so, Let's say you start a company and you know in five years it's gonna be a $500 million company. And you're sitting there five years later and it's a $500 million company. That's how you would have explained it to people the whole way through. It's like as if you knew it was, you were gonna be there and the company was gonna be worth 500 million. Like, hey, like I know I just met you, like you guys run this fund or whatever, but like in 48 months, if you see this crystal ball right here, like, yeah, this is definitely gonna be a $500 million company or a billion dollar company. And they look at it, they're like, oh yeah, you're right. The conversation would go a little different if they knew the outcome. And so I think if you are building a company, you have to have, sometimes it's just like absolute delusion. Yeah. Like I'm definitely delusional, like hundred percent. Like, yeah. Like what? Like it <laughs> so helps. It helps. Yeah. So if that's how you really feel and there's, and you're not making it up, you're not like trying to put on this, that's how you really feel. Well then you never try and persuade anybody. Yeah. Cause someone's going to do it. It's a numbers game. Yeah, yeah, you know, for, for you know, this is a life principle, you know, whether it's dating or trying to get investors or trying to make something happen in this world. For, there's one school of thought, which is persistence, right? Keep yeah. following up on the email, keep showing up with her house, to yeah. her house with the roses, right? And your idea is like, no, you know what you're looking for, 
it's almost like if it doesn't it doesn't yeah. happen naturally or just doesn't work out why keep forcing the issue yeah. you can't change people's minds it's a great takeaway another another rule here's what i would say is every investor that's ever invested in one of my companies after the meetings called me 12 times and asked for the docs because they wanted the deal i have never pitched twice in my whole life ever i've never you just said you're twice. pitching people at showroom who aren't going to be in for two more years though How no you think i was about talking that? about employees recruiting oh recruiting yeah, yeah but but with investors like i'll go through diligence like they have like funds have legit diligence like okay these are real questions like whatever but i never pitch twice i'm never asking again you go in you give them everything full hour of attention like whatever it is and you tell them what the round is that's you've made the ask you've informed them but if you have to beg and persuade well they don't want the deal it's like <laughs> the girl at the bar she don't want to talk to you dude like yeah. like there's there's other yeah, girls yeah, yeah. at the bar like yep. you know it's like that's kind of how it is and so but there are those I, stories of persistence and send, sending the six pack of beer. And that's, 100%. that's what like makes my brain hurt. It's like, well, should I be pushing harder? Like, should I be saying this signal is terrible, but keep going? It's a very non-human thing to do. If something smells bad, you don't eat it. So the only, <laughs> the only time I've ever persisted is if I genuinely thought the person I met at the fund, let's say it was a bigger fund, was probably the wrong person. Like, I know there's someone who's like more in like, let's say showroom, it's an e-commerce company, right? Adjacent to that would be like maybe consumer internet. Well, I might have realized halfway through the meeting, I'm actually talking to the wrong person. I'm talking to the consumer internet guy. I should probably be talking to the girl who's running e-commerce. She'll know this better, but they're never going to talk about it because they don't have time because they go from call to call to call to call to call. So the only time I'll follow up and suggest something or whatever is if I genuinely think the person I pitched it to doesn't know the market enough. But I, I rarely do that either, honestly. I had someone give me advice recently, which was, if you have to pitch a customer multiple times, like something is wrong with your pitch. Like you should yeah. only have to pitch yeah. it one time. And yeah, it should be it, so obvious within two minutes that so you solve a big headache. It sounds yeah. like you would agree with that. Statement. I agree with that. Also make sure that you're, um, I um, try, this is difficult in venture because you have to be respectful of the younger associates because at the end of the day, they actually are the ones who end up like championing to want to do a deal to the partners and stuff. Uh, so you gotta discount this for venture, but generally speaking, I almost never under any circumstances try and have any meeting with anybody who's not a decision maker. Because especially for corporate partnerships, cause you do get dragged through because you're talking to someone who's not the decision maker maybe, and they have 10 other things that they're talking to on that they're not the decision maker on. And so oh. when they have to go meet with the decision maker, they can't throw all 10 on his plate at once. So they pick the two or three that they like, they want to talk about this week. And if you weren't one of those and you follow We've up, been there. they know in their head, oh, I haven't yeah. even brought this up to them yet. Yeah. Um, and so then they go back to you. And so usually when I hear people are getting dragged down with corporate partnerships, they're either not talking to the decision maker. And if you are, they don't want the deal, dude. <laughs> Cause they're the decision maker and they're dragging their feet, you know? Yeah. So it's like, that's why when I hear people are dragging on corporate partnerships, they're not, they're either talking to the wrong person or the person isn't kind enough to do what they should. We just tell you they don't want to do it because they don't ever, these companies never want to say no. Bro, where were you two years ago? You would have made our lives so much easier. Just talk, one podcast yeah. changed a man's life. <laughs> yeah. It's that's just, awesome. yeah, you got to talk to this. Love this. Yeah. I love this framework. I'm going to pocket this for rest of my life. Dude, so many uh, good, uh, gold, gold nuggets. Here. So yeah, yeah, as we, get towards the kind of um, uh, ending, uh, we need to talk about showroom, right? Okay, so, yeah. you know, as you said, everyone's building an AI company. Everybody. Tell us about what showroom is and why it's not just a GPT wrapper that yep. no one should care about. Okay, so showroom, think of it as GPT for fashion. Um, so we built a massive cloud infrastructure project. I don't wanna say every brand and retailer, but we have nearly every brand and retailer in the world in the database, tens of millions of SKUs, everyone from large retailers like Nordstrom and Saks all the way to like direct to consumer challenger brands like Cuts Clothing and Away Luggage, stuff like that. Um, the only search engines that have competed with Google over the last 20 years have been vertical specific search engines. Cars.com for cars, Kayak, Expedia, Travelocity for hotel and travel, Pinterest for visual discovery. There are no vertical specific search engines for fashion. My personal opinion and the company's opinion is that this is because prior to language models, this is actually something that could not have been done very well. And the reason why is if I show you two black t-shirts and one's from Lululemon and one's from Gap and I remove the brand names, the product descriptions are shockingly similar. It's just describing a black t-shirt. 
Lululemon doesn't pitch what Lulu is in every single product description. So if you were limited to text-based, to like the copy of the name of a product, the sub, the description, et cetera, and try to like gather enough data, how would it ever know that this t-shirt is for when you're working out and this is for an undershirt when you go out? It's inherent in the sentiment of the brand, Lululemon, Gap, Nike, Ralph Lauren, what those brands and products are for. These language models have read everything the brands have ever put out, every advertisement, every piece of social, and most importantly, what every user in the world has said about these brands, our peers, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. So it has this understanding. Without that, if you were to say, you know, I want to dress similar in style to what Kylie Jenner wore in Prague, well, if you type that into Google, it's going to be more about who owns the keywords Kylie Jenner or dress in Prague than it has to do with what the product is. Um, and if you go to GPT and you say, um, I want a country style, you know, denim jacket similar to what Chris Stapleton wore or something, it knows what those are. It might suggest Carhartt, Levi's, Wrangler. We were talking about this a little bit, but it can't show you the products. GPT can browse the internet, but the big fundamental problem is that every retailer and brand in the world organizes their internal data differently. Some use Shopify, some use WooCommerce, some use enterprise platforms, some built their own, you know, like big companies built their own and they all save data differently. So there isn't some uniform way where all this data is saved. And because that's so broken, we've had to take all of this data, standardize it, and then build our internal language model to get that to communicate with GPT. And so a very rudimentary example of broken data in e-commerce. Um, I'll give you an example in gaming. And then I'll give you an example in e-commerce. In the gaming business, it might say that, you know, Tiger Woods, his average drive off the tee is 285 yards. Well, you have to clean that data. What they didn't tell you is he teed off two times with three iron, twice with a three wood, and then the rest of the round was with a driver. So if you were trying to figure out his average drive with a driver, you shouldn't lurk at what his average drive is generally, because he didn't use a driver every time. In e-commerce, some brand might have a dress um, that only has one color option and it's green, and they have a green circle. Another brand that only has a dress that comes in green decided, let's not even have the color wheel with just green. Let's just get rid of that and put green in the name of the product. Well, then when you crawl that data, one of these brands is missing the color of what the brand is because it might have not been clear in the, in the right structure. But we've had to build all ah. these internal language models that essentially like one of them is like an image recognition thing that we've built. So if I know that this, dress because they gave me the hex code or the RGB code of this product is light green and here's the code. I've got another dress. I don't know what color it is by just looking at the data, but we can take a pixel out of it and we know that it's within spitting distance to this color that we did have the hex code. We now know what color it is. So you have all this data and it's like there's all these missing puzzle pieces and you have to internally fill the pieces and then you have to get that to communicate with GPT. So on Showroom, when you're talking back as a user to, G to Showroom, you are speaking to GPT. But then GPT is turning around and essentially going into our big data set and communicating with our language model. GPT comes up with their own vector score for what a user might have asked for. We come up with ours. And wherever those match, I would argue it's the most accurate search result for any clothing item on the planet. We take the 50 that surround that. That's your first page search results. And then if you want to edit that, you can just have this ongoing conversation. Versus on Google, you're kind of going back to the search bar and like trying to change what you said. And the fundamental problem with that is they're not showing you exactly what you want to see. They're showing who bought the keywords, which sometimes is similar, but a lot of times it's just the big box brands. And so people have gone to companies like ShopRunner or they've gone to like more boutique places to shop or retail. That's why retail started to begin with because you didn't want to have to go brand by brand and keep tabs open for everything that you'd ever want to buy until you want to come back to it. And you know, um, but Google's been so keyword driven that they're never going to go sentiment driven. They're going to be keyword driven. And so I thought that there's no one that's built a vertical specific search engine for fashion. Um, global e-commerce sales, uh, are up there with things like oil. <laughs> I mean, other, like, like the economy spends so much money on this. The Tam's huge. Yeah. I mean, look at Shane with their, just was just huge. asking for a 89 billion dollar valuation up huge. from 60 at the start of yeah. 2023. Which so is it's insane. trillions of dollars. So this is what checked the box for me. Um, GPT cannot do this on its own. It might give you better suggestions. If you say, what should I wear to Italy? It might say like, oh, you should wear like a, you know, this kind of dress, like whatever, linen jumpsuit. But it's not recommending a specific product. Not only that, I can't show you them. It might say like, oh, check out these brands. Now you're just going to this, now you're searching linen jumpsuit yeah. on Sheen. Like, uh, like it just shows you the product. So what I liked is on its own, the moat of any AI company, in my opinion, is on the back end, 
are you organizing some massive bifurcated data that on its own GPT can't pull because it's so broken, but you've fixed that. Well, then that's the moat. The moat's the data. Mm -hmm. The moat is like this internal data that no one else has. Not that no one else could build what we've built. It's very difficult. Um, so, but that's the moat. So check that box. Um, top 10 TAM in the world, e-commerce like that. Um, and I like that it could be a global business and there was no regulation. I made that, I wrote on my board <laughs> under no circumstances will I ever be in another regulated market for the next 10 years of my life. <laughs> so such a, such an awesome time having you. Okay. This yeah. was, I was focused the whole way through. No George W. Bush, check the watch yeah, moment. Check the watch. Yeah. Um, uh, absolutely f phenomenal. So thank That's you fun. everybody for listening to an episode of our future podcast. Make sure to be subscribed, uh, on YouTube. Um, and you know, you can listen on Spotify and the audio platforms as well. Remember, uh, but thank you so much and, Thanks, and Sam, Thanks, best yeah, of luck with the venture. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Sam, do you want to plug anything? This is the yeah. moment. Uh, sign up for our waiting list showroom.store. There we it. go. And where, where can folks find you? Me? Yeah. Twitter, Twitter at Sam Ratner. Yeah. At Sam I tell, Ratner. I tell dude, fun dude, stories. Dude. That's about it. Dude. Yeah. MFM broke Brian Johnson. Like they broke a few people. We're going to break Sam Ratner. Let's dude. It. Let's go. Great. All right. All right. Stay awesome. frosty. All right. Yep.